0: Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message.
1: Be wheezing before it's over with, but that's, that's normal, so. All right, let's start. We're on session seven, <clears throat> this session about the Feast of the Lord. The King is coming, and this one is about this present interval, the the church age. So let's get right into it, okay? <clears throat> the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Pentecost. By the way, let me just ask, you all been getting anything out of this? Yeah. I mean, there's good stuff in here, and I pray that, uh, I, there, it, you know, not just for me, but I know I'm, I'm learning probably as, as much or more than anybody because I get to do the, the legwork and the study on it. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, I could probably make each one of these sessions last at least two hours, but I have to condense it because there's so much out there to put out. But uh Anyway, I hope you're getting something out of it. It's, it's really been good for me. So. But anyway, as we discovered in the last study, these, these feasts were fulfilled by Jesus' ascension into heaven to the right side of the throne of God. That was the Feast of Pentecost. And then by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those faithful 120 Jews gathered in the upper room and upon the household of Cornelius, the salvation to the Gentiles. We studied that last week. This is the promise that uh, Jesus had made in when he said he was going to send a helper. <clears throat> this is what is commonly called the church age, this, this time frame, this uh, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, that we're in right now, the, the, the time frame. We're, we're calling it the church age because at this time, the church as we know it was birthed. And, and so uh, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest was at the end of the grain harvest in the month of uh, Sivan, which is the May-June time frame on our Gregorian calendar. And then, of course, the next feast is a Feast of Trumpets. The next feast we'll study, which takes place in the month, month of Tishri, Tishri, as part of the last of the required feast seasons, the Feast of Tabernacles seasons, or the pilgrimage, which they had to make, includes the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So, in other words, the, when we get to the Feast of Trumpets, it starts trumpets, and then it'll go to Day of Atonement, and then it'll go right into uh, tabernacles. And the prophetic implication of this feast season is huge, you don't want to miss these studies. And I'm telling you, it's going to be good because we're talking now about the, the stuff that happens uh, later. In, in other words, the prophetic implications are the things of the last times, even though these feast seasons are, are, were being celebrated uh, at the time of Moses or from that point on. Remember, it was mandatory that all males of age had to go to the house of God or the place where God was these three feast seasons, the, the Passover, the weeks, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and then Tabernacles. So in a quick review, we saw how the feast, of, the feast season of Passover, which includes unleavened bread and first fruits, teaches us of God's peace. That's what we found. The gospel message of right relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the first step which leads to the reconciliation of man to God through Christ. Second Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Since we're reconciled with God, of course, that leads us to peace. The Feast of Pentecost teaches us what should be our second encounter with God, the receiving of power through the indwelling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings us, to all, us, us all into perfect unity in the church universal, both Jew and Gentile. We talked about that last week. We're talking about the symbology of the two loaves with leaven waved before the Lord, representing the Jew and the Gentile. At the time of true conversion, we are indwelt by the Spirit <clears throat> the Spirit of God, but God wants us to have this baptism so that we might have the power, the boldness, and the authority to be bold witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus. When you come to become born again, the Spirit of God comes to live within you. He's in, he indwells you at that time, but you need that baptism of the Holy Spirit for the power to be able to do the things in your life to overcome sin to with to be the bold witness that you need to be I encourage you if you have not had the baptism of the Holy Spirit it's time to get it and get that power you need because these days you need everything you can get to overcome the world <clears throat> it was this second encounter with God rather than the resurrection that transformed Peter from being a weenie coward timid in denying Jesus three times to the man who stood before the great crowd shortly after the upper room experience and preached the gospel to a large crowd and 3,000 were saved. The power of the Holy Spirit on this little upper room group of ordinary men and women turned their world upside down. You can see that in Acts 17, 6. So before we get out of uh, Shavuot, that's the Hebrew word for the Feast of Weeks, I want to give a little bit more, more insight that is important in our understanding of the Gentiles coming into the promises of God. I was not able to cover this in the last class, so that's what, that's what I just wanted to cover it this time because uh, I think it's very important we see this because it's one of the things that, uh, that uh, well, we'll see. One of the customary practices of the Jewish people as they go through the, the counting of the Omer days, remember we talked about that, they count for 50 days from the, from the day after first Firstfruits. Uh, they count 50 days until uh, the Feast of Pentecost. That's where Pentecost got its name, 50. Uh, for, was, so they, one of the things that they do was to stay up all night and study scriptures. The passages of Psalm 119 being one that they focused on. In other words, 119 is the scripture; it's a passage that has great insight into the into the precepts and and uh, uh, laws of the of the Word of God, and all put into uh, Psalms. Another is the Book of Ruth. In fact, on the day of Pentecost or weeks, the entire story of Ruth and her relationship with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer is read in the synagogue, or the temple setting, or wherever it might be, depending on where you're at. <clears throat> what is a kinsman redeemer? In biblical times, a male relative, who according to various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative that was in trouble, in danger, or in need. The Hebrew term goel, for kinsman redeemer, designate, designate ones who, one who delivers or rescues, or redeems property or a a person. There's some reference verses there. You can go to those later, and I encourage you, as always, to do that. The kinsman who redeems or vindicates a relative is illustrated most clearly in the book of Ruth, where the kinsman redeemer is Boaz. This is very interesting because of its obvious message concerning Christ. And Here are a few of the parallels to consider. Boaz was from Bethlehem. Jesus was from Bethlehem. Boaz was the master of the harvest. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. Boaz was a a kinsman redeemer, and Jesus is a kinsman redeemer. The story of Ruth and Boaz begins when Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi returned to Bethlehem from Moab where they had been living. Naomi's husband and both sons, one of the husbands, uh, one, one, the husband of Ruth, had died, leaving the women penniless and without a male protector. In other words, Naomi's husband, I think his name was uh, Abimelech or something like that. He died, and the and bo- both sons, which were Melion and Chilion, which actually means weakly and sickly if you look it up in Hebrew. But they both died, and they had they had went they had been went been, been to um, to uh, <coughs> from Moab to from Bethlehem to Moab because uh, the nation of Israel was going through a terrible drought, and Moab was d- uh, doing well. So they'd moved there. They were they were there for about ten years. You can go back and. And you need to go back and read that. That's a great story. You'll that's one of the best stories in the Bible, I think, about uh, Ruth and and Boaz. But we need to you need to read it. But anyway, Naomi's husband and both sons. One of the husband of Ruth had died, leaving the women penniless and without a uh, male protector. Naomi, who is obviously despairing about her current state, tries to get the two daughters-in-law to go back to their own land. But Ruth refuses, for she loves Naomi. The other daughter did go back daughter-in-law did go back, but Ruth said no, and, and we find her response in Ruth 116. It says, but Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Now, there's a point to this, and we're getting to it. Upon arriving in <clears throat> Bethlehem, Naomi, Naomi sends Ruth to glean in the fields of Boaz, a wealthy relative of Naomi, to whom they, they, through a series of divinely appointed circumstances, appeal as their Goel. They're asking him to be the Goel for them, which is their, would be their kinsman redeemer. Boaz consents and willingly takes Ruth as his wife, and together they bear a son named Obed, who became grandfather of David, the forefather of Jesus. So here's part of the backstory. Ruth was a Moabitess, a Gentile. That's important to know. She met Boaz during the barley harvest, which would have been the, first of feast, the feast of Firstfruits, and which, of course, is the time of Passover. And she eventually married Boaz, but only after she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, had been, been redeemed by the Redeemer, Boaz, in the presence of ten elders. You can read that passage in, in uh, uh, Ruth, chapter 4, uh, verse 2. Traditionally, Boaz and Ruth were married during the time of the wheat harvest, which is Pentecost, Or the Feast of Weeks. So we can see how they would fit that in reading it at that time between that that 50 days in between uh, uh, the Feast of First Fruits or their Passover season and Pentecost. Furthermore, their union ushered in the throne of David, uh, the kingdom that would never end. So we had Boaz, married to Ruth, of course. They they bore, uh, begat uh, Obed, and then he begat Jesse, and then he begat David, and then 28 more begats later. Then there was Jesus. That's how the lineage went. So that's where you can trace him all, back, all the way back, his lineage, all the way back to Jesus. So you can see that there was Gentiles in, in, the, in the background of the lineage uh, leading up to Jesus. And here again, of course, we know this, the truth about that is that he was not fathered by an fa- earthly father. He was fathered by the heavenly father, of course. Here again, we see, the story, see in this story the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer. I think this story not only points or shows us the prophetic implication of the redemption of the Gentile nations, the two loaves waved before the Lord, even before Cornelius and his household in the New Testament, but since Naomi the Jewess was the focal point for the redemption to start with, prophetically, this is showing us that Israel also will one day be restored to her inheritance. See, Naomi was the one that was married to Ahimelech, and he, she was the one that had to be redeemed first. And of course, there was another in the story, you'll read this. There was another man that was a closer kin than Boaz was, and when he presented that's why he took him took before the 10 elders at the gate of, of the city he, he told him, he said, it, "You know, will you redeem Naomi?" And he said he would redeem Naomi. Naomi. But then he brought up also, uh, Boaz says, "But you also have to redeem uh, Ruth at the same time, because she's a daughter-in-law." And he wouldn't do that. And so he gave the redemption over to Boaz, and that's why Boaz took, it, uh, took over both of them and, and the redemption for that. So it's a, it's a lot of, there's a lot of things in there to know about that, that. So not only were the Gentiles redeemed, but also looking back at that, we can see that there's something going on right there for Israel in the future about a rest- restoration of her inheritance. I think that's very important, and I think we'll see more of that as we go forth in these, in these feasts. This is why we, as Gentile believers, pray and support Israel. This is why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God is not finished with his people. We'll see more on this as we go forward in our school on the feast, especially as we get into the next one and uh, the trumpets and the Day of Atonement and tabernacles, of course. There's a lot of It's rich in, rich in that uh, symbolism and stuff like that. So back to the church age and the dispensation of grace, this present interval that we're living in. We're living in the church age. In our last study, we saw that the prophetic implication of the Feast of Weeks was fulfilled by Jesus in His promise to send the Helper, the promise of the Father, and manifested in the Holy Spirit-filled church. Jews and Gentiles alike in the unity of one Holy Spirit, again represented by the two waves, uh, wave loaves of bread. Galatians 3, 27 through 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No matter where you come from, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are all one in the body of Christ. We are now living in this present interval called the dispensation of grace, the church age. This, is, this, is, uh, this started with the birth of the church and will end with a catching away of the church, the rapture. How many of you believe in the rapture? You think there's going to be a rapture one day? Oh, yes. Come on, rapture. Let it happen. <coughs> dispensationalism, that's a big word, dispensationalism. It's a system of theological thought and a method of interpreting history that sees God administering his rule over the world through several dispensations as he progressively works out his purpose for mankind in world history. Most biblical scholars agree on these dispensations. or seven of them. There could be as many as 37, if you depend on who you read or study, or as little as three, but most uh, settle on these, these seven. There's first the dispensation of innocence. You can see that in Genesis 1:3, from Adam till the fall. Then there's the next one is called the dispensation of conscience after man sinned up to the flood. Uh, these are segments of time is what we're looking at. And then there's the dispensation of human government. After the flood, man was allowed to eat meat and various other things and the death penalty was instituted during this time of uh, dispensation of human government. Then there's the dispensation of promise This comes from Genesis 12, from the promises to Abraham up to Moses and the giving of the Torah, the law. And then that leads in, of course, to the dispensation of the law, which is Exodus 20 up to Acts 2-4, from Moses to the crucifixion of Jesus, the Holy Spirit given the birth of the church, which leads us to number six, which is the dispensation of grace, the church age, from the cross and the birth of the church to the millennial kingdom. And then the last dispensation, which has not come yet, is the millennial kingdom, which uh, we'll see is in Revelation 24, a literal literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on earth, centered in Jerusalem. So in dispensationalism, there are three key principles. We need to listen to this and look at them so we kind of get our heads on right about what we're talking about. That there is a clear distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's program for the church. God's not done with Israel. And then number two, a consistent and regular use of literal, of a literal principle of interpretation, less symbolic and allegorical. In other words, what it's saying is, we always should strive to interpret the Bible literally rather than allegorically or uh, symbolically where we can. Although we do use a lot of symbolism, I understand that. Like the numbers seven and different things like that. Uh, uh, different things that we use in our teaching and our study. <clears throat> the understand, and then number three, the understanding of the purpose of God as his own glory rather than the salvation of mankind. You realize that the, really the whole thing about the Bible is we're, we're to give glory in all things. It is the salvation of man is, is the thing that we need, to, we, we need to rejoice in, but his own glory is what we're supposed to be doing, and we've we got to do that. Isaiah 42.8 says, God said this of himself, I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And just for the sake of clarity, a main key point to remember when we're discussing the different ways that God has dealt with man, in no way do we want to insinuate that there is more than one way to attain salvation. That has always been the same from beginning to end, salvation by grace, through faith, in all of the dispensations. Jesus said in John 14:6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We all know that by heart. That applies to Jews and Gentiles alike. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when I say there's a different program for the, for the Jews versus the, uh, uh, for the Gentile or for the, the church, what I'm saying is that, that there is a plan for, the, for the, uh, Israel that's going to happen, but we'll see that as things unfold uh, with the rest of the study. Remember this also. Dispensation is a train of thought and not essential to salvation. Did you hear that? It's not essential to salvation that you're a dispensationalist. If you believe that way, a lot of people don't. You can subscribe to this way of thought or not. It doesn't make you wrong or right, or me wrong or right. But it encourages asking questions and examining Scripture, digging deeper and staying longer in the Word of God. Now, as we move along, that's what I'm. You know, you can take it or leave it. That's I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, but it's a, it's a good way, and, and a lot of Bible scholars use this to look at the way God is is operating in uh, the history of man uh, from time, from, uh, from eternity to eternity. Now, as we move along, something significant to think about is that after Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, <clears throat> you have an interval of time, about four months long, before the Feast of Tabernacles begins, which begins with the month of Tishri. A pretty long interval to say that less than two months separated the spring feasts of Passover, the three feasts of Passover, and Pentecost. So part of the reason for this, and I believe God planned it this way, is that after the Feast of Weeks, the grain harvest, this was a very busy time of the year for the Israelite people. This was the time for all of the rest of the crops to be tended to till they were gathered. Soon you would have the grape harvest, the pomegranate harvest, the fig harvest, the almond harvest, the olive harvest, and others. The people who were very busy During this time, during this summer interval, it was a time in preparation for the main harvest. Prophetically, this was speaking to a long period of time when God would not be dealing with his people on a national basis. Now think about this, that in relation to what the church is doing in the church age is supposed to be doing and has been doing for the last 2,000 years, a long interval of time. So see, we've gone through the first four feasts, Passover and Pentecost, Now we have this interval called the church age. That's what we're in right now as far as God's time clock goes. As far as Bible prophecy is concerned, many people consider the nation of Israel as God's prophetic timepiece based on His interaction with them. This interval between Pentecost and the last feast season is seen as an interruption in that interaction. God chose Israel, the Jews, as a nation of people through whom he would work work out certain of his divine plans and purposes. God would use them to write down and preserve the scriptures, to bring the Messiah into the world, and to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus to all nations. The Jews first were, fulfilled these first two callings, but failed on the last because their leaders rejected Jesus. John, You can see this in John 1, 11 through 12. John wrote, he said, talking about Jesus, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. And to the, that includes to them, to them, meaning also the Gentiles. For the last 2,000 years, during this church age, God has used and blessed the Gentiles, not Israel. Can you see that? Can you look at the history? You can look at the history of Israel and see if they, they have not been blessed since they rejected Jesus, have they? And, and of course, they're coming back into the land, but that's still, uh, that they're still not as blessed as they were before when they were before Jesus. From the time of the crucifixion when they rejected Jesus outright as their Messiah, the nation of Israel had been blinded to the message of Jesus Christ. And the major cause of their blindness is, their own, is of their own doing. Not only did they not receive him as their messiah in, as in John one eleven above, but the leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought curses upon the nation when they said when they and the people made this declaration at the mock trial of Jesus we've read this times before, but listen to what they said in matthew 27, uh, 24 through twenty five when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, he was trying to trying to get him to accept Jesus, but he said when he when he, when he saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult, tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it, talking to the, the leaders and the, and the people that were there. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. <clears throat> Keep in mind, some of these were probably the people incited and paid for by the religious leaders these were not the same people that just a few days earlier were singing hosanna in the highest at his triumphal entry. Can you believe that though? They they cursed themselves by saying his blood be on us and our children and that's what happened. Ever since then they've been cursed. They've been a wandering uh, nation. Israel during during this age of dispensation or dispensation, Israel has wandered from nation to nation. She has been beaten, tortured, imprisoned and brutally slain. We saw that in the holocaust how many Millions, over six million, were killed during the Holocaust alone and probably even untold others all throughout the ages. Her total rejection of her Messiah has left her house desolate. Prophetically spoken from Hosea, in Hosea 3, 4, he says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Since the church age began, this has been the time that God has been calling the Gentiles into his kingdom. He is gathering to to himself a people drawn to faith by grace, made up of all the nations, colors, and cultures, united and empowered by his Holy Spirit to walk in love and truth. And because of the grace of Calvary and the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, these are the people that have the law written on their hearts. We talked about that in the passage from Jeremiah. These are the people that will say, He is my God because of a personal relationship with him, not a people who claim that he is the God of our fathers by tradition. And of course, these people include the Gentiles in the future harvest to come. Here is a passage in the book of Acts where James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is acknowledging at the, at the Jerusalem council uh, what happened in the household of the centurion, uh, uh, centurion Cornelius. The Jews, even the Jewish church at that time, were having a hard time acknowledging that there were Gentiles coming in even when they were converted to Christians, they were having a hard time, but they had this council. James was provi- presiding over it because he was leader of the Jerusalem Church, and and so uh, Paul and Barnabas got up there and made their arguments about what happened. And Peter had, had converted uh, Cornelius and his household, and he said, "So Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His own name, uh, for His name, and with this words, uh, the words of the prophet." Uh, agree just as it is written after this I will return and I will rebuild that tabernacle of David which is fallen down I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things so they're acknowledging at that time that yes the Gentiles are going to be part of this uh, this church this great harvest and so the mission of the church has been to preach and teach the gospel to all the all the world. The Great Commission is not on hold, but still the central focus and purpose of the church as given by Jesus in some of his last words before ascending into heaven. He said in Matthew 28, <clears throat> verses 19 and 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. There we go again. There's only one Jewish nation, but all the nations are, are Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo." I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. Now, so note all the nations until the end of the age. Jesus is saying that this message of the gospel is for all nations, all races, all cultures and creeds, and must be preached to the end of the age, meaning an era of time, of de- of a time of indefinitely long period that will come, will come to an end. There's no definite time etched in stone. It's open-ended right now. Only God knows that time, but it will come to an end. I believe this speaks to the end of the church age when the rapture will occur. The Holy Spirit and his indwelling presence on the earth will leave with the raptured church and soon thereafter will be the revealing of the lawless one and the beginning of the great tribulation. How many of you know? I think we're close to this time. Any of you any of you, get that feeling? I know you do. But God is not through with his people, the nation of Israel. Remember, God is a co- is not a covenant breaker. He's a covenant keeper. Exodus 6, uh, verses 6 through 7 says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, this is what he first told them when he was talking to them when they were still in Egypt. He said, I'll be your God. I'm gonna, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. God can, he can't deny himself. He can't say something and, and then turn his back on there because he, that would not be just that's not god so and then in Deut- deuteronomy 7 uh, verse 9 he says therefore know that the lord your god he is god the faithful god who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments and then psalm 108 105 uh, verse 8 he says he remembers his covenant forever the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. He's not going to forget. God is not a forgetful God. He is a covenant keeper, and he's got a plan. Uh, Even though we may not know that plan, he's got a plan. And as as I've said before, please take the time to read the Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11, especially chapter 11, and you'll see that Israel's rejection is not total and not final. Romans 11.5 will just give you a couple. It says, even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. How many of you know that God works a lot of times through the remnant? It's not just through the vast majority, but through the remnant, he works. And that uh, he's got people uh, reserved for that. And then in Romans 11:25, he says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That the blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, these are just a few teaser verses. That's why I want you to go back and read. There's 30, 36, just in uh, Romans chapter 11, there's 36 verses. You need to go, go back and you'll see what I'm talking about. The church age period fills the great time gap between the two comings of Jesus. He came the first time as the Passover lamb who died for our sins. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to initiate the birth of the church and probably, can be, and probably can be said as the Gentile church. There's more Gentiles than there are Jews in the church today and there has been since the instigation of the church or the birth of the church. So basically it is a Gentile church, but it's the church. And when this, when this age, age comes to an end, then he will come a second time as the lion from the tribe of Judah, Judah to rule, not as the king of Jews, but also as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The prophetic significance of this next feast season, Tabernacles, is that it represents the end of the age and the return of the Messiah Jesus in God's final encounter with the Jewish people. Read the Roman passages as noted above in preparation for that. You need to see, you need to see these. God made several eternal promises to Israel, which make it only natural to expect that Israel would play a key role in the end times, and Scripture reveals that they will. As we study the remaining feast seasons, starting with trumpets, we'll see, we will see indications of where the time clock in God dealing again with Israel on a more personal basis will start back up again. It's going to be a real trumpet blower. I would throw that in. <laughs> anyway, you'll see when we get back, to when we see trumpets there. But that, I know it's a little short tonight, but I... I I covered what I wanted to as far. I wanted to get across to the point now that we're in that point from Pentecost in, into the next feast season, which is, prophetically speaking, we're talking about that the, the ushering in the end times and the things are going to – and basically what we're saying is that the, the prophetic implications is the trumpets shows the rapture, uh, the, the day of atonement shows the judgment time, which could be the tribulation, and then, of course, the tabernacles is going to be the millennial reign of Jesus – and we'll see all those things like that. So it's very exciting to think about what these things are showing to us prophetically and uh, what, what, what they're going to show uh, to us and, and how we need to prepare. So, uh, so that's all i got for you tonight. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you, Father, for what you show us in your word. and Father, how you give us insight into your word and reveal the mysteries, the truths that is revealed uh, through your word. And, Father, we thank you for the church. that was a mystery before Jesus came. Father, no one knew what was going to happen. No one even knew how Jesus was going to fulfill the plan of the kingdom. But when Jesus was revealed and when Jesus died on the cross and when the church was birthed, then we become a part of that, and we become a part of that great mystery, which the mystery which the devil can't do anything about. And We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that we're part of the process that you've given us, the great commission to go out and do the work of the Lord in this world, to see everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before the time comes when it's, when the time comes. Uh, for salvation will come to an end. But, Father, we know we have our time. We have the commission that you've given to us. We have our orders, and we need to be out about the business of uh, salvation to others. So thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that you've empowered us with the Spirit of God to go out and be bold and be able to do that. Help us, Father, to fulfill the calling that you've placed upon each one of us and help us to do it to give you the glory in all things. In Jesus' name, I pray.
0: Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media, like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.